0: Morning. I want you to imagine an Aztec man in the 14th century. He's a decent guy, but given to the sins that predominate in his culture, like most people. And the shipbuilding technology to reach him has not been invented yet. He has zero chance of hearing the good news of the gospel. And then he dies and faces God's judgment. Is that fair? What about people who have never heard? Let's imagine that he stands before God and he says, hey, but, but I never heard. The fairness of God's wrath is a common question. It seems too broad in its scope and too intense in its application. Paul's argument in Romans 1 is no. God's wrath is just, and it's against everyone. If you're writing things down, the point of the message condensed into one sentence, God's wrath is universal and just, and calls all people to repentance. God's wrath is universal and just, And calls all people to repentance. It's justly universal and universally just. There's a line at the end of Jude that says, Be merciful to those who doubt. To others, show mercy mixed with fear. It's something of a mission statement verse for me, to show mercy to those who doubt. If you have doubts, I want to explain God's wrath in a way that makes sense to you and shows mercy to you. Some of you perhaps need, though, the mercy mixed with fear. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, and we pick it up in verse 18. That's Romans chapter 1, and we pick it up in verse 18. And let's stand. I like that tradition. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. Because what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, because they are understood through what has been made. So, people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their thoughts, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for an image resembling mortal human beings, or birds, or four footed animals, or reptiles. You can be seated. And we're wondering, why is God's wrath against everyone? The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Which brings up a challenge. Well, what about those who have never heard? So God creates human beings with original sin, and some have a 0% chance of hearing the message that could save them. And then God sends them to hell for not believing a message that they could never have heard in the first place? That's a straightforward challenge that even some of my students come up with. To answer it, we need to follow the logic of the text. God's wrath is against them because, verse 19, what can be known about God is plain. Well, why is it plain? God has made it plain. How? Verse 20 His eternal power and divine nature have been seen in what's been made, in creation. So, people are without excuse. So imagine a courtroom. Our Aztec guy says, Hey, that's no fair, I've never heard. Enter the first witness, it's creation. Everyone can look up at the stars or see the complexity of the insects and know that there has to be a creator, a designer. It didn't just occur. For a long time, the standard atheistic explanation for why there's something rather than nothing is, in Bertrand Russell's words, the universe is just there, and that's all. Christians believe that God is just simply there, and you could say, like, well, maybe the universe is just there. The problem with an eternally existing universe is that the universe is slowly running out of energy. The stars will eventually all burn out um, and then we'll reach a state known as heat death. That will be the end. We haven't reached that point. The universe began to exist. So what could cause the beginning of the universe? Um, The science behind uh, the beginning of a universe Um, It's pretty clear. So the, the most common way now to deny God is to say that the universe came from absolutely nothing. It popped into existence. And you don't have to be a sophisticated physicist to know that from nothing, nothing comes. There's common sense and scientific problems with that. What you need is something outside of the universe, something spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, something intelligent to create a universe like ours. Which is why Paul says his eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen. You can work backwards from creation to the creator. People can look around and intuitively know there is a God. The next four, uh, four is not just a, uh, a nice-sounding word that biblical authors put at the beginning of a sentence to make it sound Bible-y. Uh, it's, it's the next step in an argument. Four, verse 21. Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks. It became futile in their thoughts, and their senseless hearts were darkened. So why are they without excuse? They knew God. Enter the second witness to say, no, you are accountable. Everyone has an innate sense, an unescapable feeling of the divine. That's one reason why atheism is in the minority in the world and throughout human history. You not only saw in creation, says the second witness, but the knowledge of God was planted in your heart. To this, some of my students have objected, well, okay, so fair enough. Our Aztec guy has an innate sense of God. But from the moment he's born, his teachers and parents and so on um, are saying that innate sense of God, well, that's Lapochli, the God of sun and war. Or that's Quetzalcoatl, the God of civilization and creation. How can he be blamed for just believing what he's been told? But for Paul, the darkness of the Aztec religion, and of other belief systems like it, is actually not exonerating evidence. It's actually evidence that condemns even further. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they didn't glorify him as God or give thanks Who became futile in their thoughts, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for an image resembling mortal human beings or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. That's actually a perfect representation of Aztec religion. feudal, senseless, with darkened hearts— They engaged in constant warfare to get captives to sacrifice to the sun god to give him life energy to stave off the end of the world. It's an exchange of the immortal god for images. Paul's saying, no, they they knew, but because of their sin, their thoughts became futile. So, yes, the Aztecs are deceived about the nature. Of spiritual reality. But Paul would say that's not an exonerating deception, but rather a self deception that makes them even more liable for God's wrath. Somewhere along the line, maybe even going back to Noah, perhaps, people knew the true God. And somewhere along the line, the, the truth about God was corrupted. We actually see this in the Bible. Remember how Abraham, he's near a town named Salem, and he runs into this guy, Melchizedek, who's priest of God Most High, who worships the true God. Then you fast forward 400 years, and the Jebusites are worshiping the Canaanite pantheon. Or in the city of Ugarit, uh, it's in Syria, We're familiar with how in archaeology, the the deeper you go, the deeper you dig, the farther back in time you're going. And uh, far back in time, the people of Ugarit worshipped one god. Much like Melchizedek. But then, uh, as you go farther up in in time, and as you get closer to the surface of your digging, uh, they started worshipping Baal and Ashtoreth. Names you would recognize. Now, we may still, though, have a justice problem. You can't look at the stars or look under a microscope and conclude that Jesus is the risen Messiah who came to die for sinners and to give his life as a ransom. That's not possible, which is why Paul says it's his eternal power and divine nature that's clearly seen, not the gospel. You can't intuit that. Which is why in chapter 10, he says, faith comes by hearing. And then how can someone hear unless someone preaches to them? Everyone has enough information to condemn them, but not everyone has enough information to save them. And you might think, okay, that is what's unfair. Maybe, in a hypothetical, um, more fair-than-God universe, people who've never heard go to heaven. And when people make up religion, uh, that's often where they go. So in Mormonism, there's not hell necessarily, but just like different levels of heaven. Uh, Or the Second Vatican Council has um, some sort of way through purgatory, that those who have never heard can you know kind of make their way but consider the alternative god's wrath isn't merely about people's failure to believe in him it's also their ungodliness and unrighteousness is it fair to say to our aztec guy you have sinned against the infinite glory of god and are deserving of infinite punishment but because you never heard this message you go free No human court works that way. Even in our human courts, ignorance of the law is not an excuse for failure to obey it. Our Aztec guy has sinned against God and the wages of sin is death. That's fair. Enter the third witness. It turns out that he actually does know what's right and what's wrong skip down to verse 32 of chapter 1. Although they fully know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but also approve of those who practice them. They fully know. Or as Paul continues the argument in chapter 2 in verse 14, for whenever the Gentiles, who do not have the law, Do by nature the things required by the law, these who do not have the law are law unto themselves. They show that the work of the law is written in their hearts as their conscience bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or else defend them. So, our Aztec guy has never seen a Bible in his life nor heard the message, but he doesn't lie at every possible chance that he gets. You can imagine that he's often faithful to his spouse and kind to his children. Paul's saying when Gentile people who've never heard do the things in the law, are decent people, they show actually they have the law on their hearts, their conscience. He knows the law, he knows God, and that's enough to justly condemn. But one more key idea. While our Aztec guy will be judged for his sin, his judgment will be less severe than those who knew. Here's Matthew 11. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, Will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Or Jesus tells the disciples as they go out to preach if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that hometown and shake the dust off your feet. Truly I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Our Aztec guy will be judged, but his judgment will be less severe than those who heard the gospel and rejected it, or those in Chorazin and Bethsaida who literally saw Jesus perform the miracles and still rejected him. We remember that dark story in Judges 19 where the men of Sodom surround the house with Lot and his daughters and they demand bring those men out that we can have sex with them. Those who hear the gospel and reject it will have a harsher judgment than the gang rapists in Sodom. For this, for this to make sense, we have to introduce another idea. There's going to be degrees of judgment in hell. It's an idea that we find elsewhere in the Bible. So Jesus says to the Pharisees, you guys will receive a harsher punishment because you prevent those who want to enter the kingdom of God from entering false teachers will receive a harsher judgment. It's why James says, not many of you should be teachers, for you know that you'll be judged more harshly. Another category, a harsher judgment. Those who take advantage of little children. Jesus says, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, here's what would have been better for them. To have a millstone, which is a rock, about that big, hung around their neck and to be tossed into the depths of the sea. And then those who know and reject anyway receive a harsher judgment. Sometimes the severity of God's judgment actually matches our intuitions. Those who abuse little children receive a harsher hell? That makes sense. Or our intuition suggests that God should account for the fact that some people have never heard in his judgment. And Jesus is saying, yes, he will. Our Aztec guy will be judged justly for his sins. He knows God through creation and intuition, and his own conscience bears witness. Yet he sins anyway. But the judgment will not be as harsh as those who reject the gospel. Jesus tells a story of a master of the estate who goes on a journey and then he leaves his servants in charge. Then, when the master returns, he says this, the servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know But does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. From everyone who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. We might ask, how is it possible for hell to vary in degree? Uh, Dante imagines circles of hell. Um, The Bible uh, is not clear on this. But for hell to be fair, it has to come in degrees. So to sum up, our asset guy protests, no fair. Two witnesses stand up. It's creation saying, you can work backwards from creation to the creator. And then it's the innate knowledge of God suppressed in unrighteousness. Then finally, a third witness stands up and says the law was written on your heart. You knew what was wrong and did it anyway. No one in the final judgment will be able to say, you are treating me unfairly. You will be judged based on what you know, based on what you did. And that's fair. One side quest before we move on in the chapter. What about little babies who die? Our Aztec guy has seen God's eternal power and divine nature in creation, and his conscience bears witness against him, so he's without excuse. He'll be judged based on what he knows. But those things don't seem to apply to little babies. Kelly and I like to say that we have four children, one in heaven. Now, there's no verse that says babies who die go to heaven But that little one, in her mommy, only for a few weeks, did not see the eternal power and divine nature in creation. And the conscience that bears witness was not yet formed. And then notice the precise language of verse 18 in chapter 1. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. Little babies don't have any truth to suppress, and so it seems that they would have an excuse. We've covered the scope of God's judgment, it's universal, and that's fair. But what about the intensity and the duration of God's judgment? Theologians have searched in vain for some sort of escape clause or fine print that would allow people who are condemned to hell to escape it. But the Bible describes hell as everlasting, eternal, or forever and ever. Seems harsh. My favorite YouTube atheist asked this, what crime is worthy of eternal punishment? Are you going to tell me with a straight face that if I curse God when I stub my toe, I should burn until the end of time? Or you could create a kind of mocking meme. So God creates people with original sin, and then he sends them to hell for it. It just seems disproportionate. Eternal torment forever? It's a sticking point for many of my students. To find answers, we have to turn to the text. Let's pick it up in verse 22. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for an image resembling mortal human beings or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the desires of their hearts to impurity, to dishonor their bodies among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creation rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. And likewise, the men abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed in their passions for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men, received in themselves the due penalty for their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do what should not be done. They are filled with every kind of unrighteousness, wickedness, covetousness, and malice. Notice three times God gives them over to their own desires. So verse 24, God gave them over to the desires of their hearts. Verse 26, God gave them over to dishonorable passions. Again in verse 28, God gave them over to a depraved mind. The therefore, or the for this reason, Um, They're key words. In other words, in light of people's idolatry, God gives them over to their own desires. We see this illustrated in the Bible all the time. The people of Israel are wandering in the wilderness, and they don't trust God to provide for them, and they demand meat to eat. And so God says, Fine then, I'll give you meat. And he sends quail, and they collect such a quantity. We read, the one who gathered the least gathered ten omers. An omer is a little less than a 55-gallon drum. So you should imagine every person has about 9.5 55-gallon drums of quail. They're waiting in it. Then you can imagine the rotting carcasses and the feces. A plague breaks out. Our culture will tell us that true flourishing is when you take whatever desire is inside of you and then you seek it, you pursue it. That's true flourishing. But Paul's saying, no, that's actually God's judgment. And it fits with the pattern of how God's judgment works in the Bible. In Genesis, Adam and Eve say, we don't want to eat from the tree of life. We'll take that forbidden tree instead. And God says, fair enough. You'll have death then. In Exodus and Deuteronomy, the people say, we want to break the covenant. And God says, fine then. You'll have the covenant curse. In Numbers, the people don't want to enter the land. They're too frightened of the inhabitants. And so God says, fair enough. You won't enter the land. You'll wander for 40 years. In Judges, the people refuse to finish the job of driving out the other nations. And so God says, fine then. Those nations will be a snare and a trap to you. In Samuel, the people demand a king. And Samuel points out, you know, a king is going to tax you. And then he's going to draft your men into his army and your girls into his service. In Kings... You want to rely on the other nations and their gods instead of me? Fine then. Those nations will besiege you and starve you and carry you off into exile. Paul says God's judgment is handing people over to the consequences of the dark path they're already on. Many people say, I don't want the presence of God in my life. And God will say, fine then you won't have it. And to not have the presence of God is the definition of hell. In Second Thessalonians 1, we read, With flaming fire, he will mete out punishment on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will undergo the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his strength. Hell is separation from God. Remember last week, dad's definition of death? Death is separation, which is why Revelation calls hell the second death. It's the final separation from God. God will give you what you want. If you don't want God's presence in your life, then you won't have it. And many many people don't realize that when you reject the true source of love and life and light, you're choosing the outer darkness, where Jesus says, there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we're wondering, how could God send people to hell? No, it's perhaps more accurate to say God's handing people over to the dark path that they already choose. In any case, what's the alternative? Some people want to imagine a kind of Santa God who says, gives a little yo-ho-ho and, um, you know, come on in. My, my love is, is big enough for everyone. But we all know how kind of cringe-inducing it is when a guy likes a girl, and she's not interested, but he keeps forcing his presence on her and says, you should be in my presence and have a love relationship with me. God does change people's hearts and wills, but he never forces people against their will. God gives people what they ask for. The words ask and you shall receive actually work both ways. And what you receive on that dark path is the dishonoring of your body. Look at verses 24 and 26. The my body, my choice anthem of our culture feels liberating. I can do whatever I feels good to my body. But the natural consequence of that is that you'll be de- degraded and dishonored. It's one reason why Paul mentions homosexuality here. Or we should be zero percent shocked that there's, in the psychological literature, a strong connection between depression and pornography use. I recently read a book called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution by Louise Perry. She's a secular British feminist, and she's realizing that the culture of free sex that was unlocked by the pill is actually degrading, particularly for women. Paul brings up homosexuality because it's a perfect metaphor for idolatrous exchange. You take what is good and holy and natural And then you twist it and pervert it into something unrecognizable. But what's so bad about idolatry, anyway? Twice in the text, it's the core reason that God hands people over, Uh, they worship the creation rather than the creator or they exchange the glory of God for an image, and, God, and therefore he handed them over, or for this reason he handed them over. It strikes many of my students as really harsh. So I should worship a God who tortures people forever if you don't worship him? Nice God you've got there. But the infinite nature of hell only makes sense when you understand the infinite nature of God's glory. Now, this is a repeat when we talked about God's wrath from the perspective of Revelation. But I read a blog that said don't sweat repeating things because people don't listen. And when they listen, they don't remember. And a lot of people didn't show up. Uh, Also, the things that you repeat are often the things that are most impactful in a ministry. So we're wondering, how can God's wrath be so harsh? And let's imagine I took a spray bottle and I sprayed down this lectern and killed 99.99% of the germs on it, committing a kind of germicide. And that would not be worthy of punishment for me because bacteria natures do not deserve our respect in that way. That's, that's not a crime. But if I took your cat... And punted him off a bridge. Um, that's that's serious. the The proverbs say that a righteous man cares for his animals. Um, even in our own law, we recognize that as felony animal cruelty. You can get one to five years in prison for that. But what if I fail to honor a human? God tells Noah after the flood story, if anyone sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed because human beings are made in God's image. They're precious. And even in our own law, we recognize that to take a human life is about the most serious thing that you can do. But what about failing to honor God? We can see how the punishment scales with the worth of the one that you're sinning, the one that you're sinning against. So what if you fail to honor the one who is of infinite worth? Well then justice would require infinite punishment. An offense against the infinite glory of God requires infinite punishment. What you're saying, if you say hell is too harsh, is to say I don't believe Jesus is of infinite worth. Now, many people who feel that God's judgment is too harsh would feel comfortable with the idea of Hitler going to hell. Many people believe in heaven and hell precisely for that reason. A part of us feels like, well, but yeah, but there still has to be justice. But my friends and family, they're good people. They're kind and caring and self-sacrificing, and have committed zero war crimes. I want you to consider a kind of scale of righteousness. And I want you to ask, where would you place yourself on the scale? Here with Hitler on one end and God's infinite righteousness on the other. We might be tempted to say something like, well, you know, Hitler's awful, so maybe I kind of belong you know, somewhere in the middle. And yes, on a relative basis, all of you are significantly more righteous than Hitler. But I want us to consider another competition. Let's suppose that LeBron James and I have a jumping competition. Who can jump higher? Now, he may be 39 years old, but he's a professional athlete and he'd destroy me. Um, But let's suppose the competition wasn't who can jump higher on a relative basis, but who can jump to the moon? In that case, LeBron's roughly 40-inch vertical and my, I don't know, (laughs) 12-inch vertical uh, are, are actually roughly the same. Neither of us are reaching exit velocity, escaping the, the orbit, and then landing on the moon. That's impossible. And in the same way, I may be relatively more righteous than Hitler, but on the scale, I belong a, hair, a hair's breadth away from him. When it comes to jumping to the moon, I'm right next to LeBron. When it comes to reaching the infinite standard of God's glory, I'm right next to Hitler. And if God's justice against him is just, his justice against me would also be just. Verse 29. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. You can find yourself on that list. Hitler's on it too. So is LeBron. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Reaching the glory of God is about as likely as jumping to the moon. Two applications. First, given by Paul himself, nine chapters later, in chapter 10, he says, how are they to believe in one they have not heard of? And how are they to hear without someone preaching to them? Consequently, faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the preached word of Christ. Those who do not hear are lost. Which is why Paul quotes Isaiah and says, "How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news!" If you're at all like my teenage students, you don't want to do anything that be that could be construed as weird, or awkward, or unwelcome, or offensive. And I think that's mainly what's stopping us. Dad made the same point last week from 2 Timothy. Do not be ashamed, Paul says, of the testimony about our Lord. So how do we get over the, oh, that's weird and awkward hump? Here's a set of questions. That I took from various evangelism methods and compiled. There's nothing magical about these questions, but uh, you might be wondering, like, man, how do I even like, begin this conversation? Like, do I lead with, when says you're a sinner and you're going to hell? It feels like, oh. I, um. So I like this question Do you have any spiritual beliefs? There's a line in the Proverbs that says, if someone gives an answer before he hears, it's a folly and a shame to them. Do you have any spiritual beliefs? You get to hear like, hey, what does this person believe? And then I like this one, do you believe in a heaven or a hell? This will tell you, is this person kind of like a cultural Christian or maybe atheistic and secular. And then, if you were to die today, and if you were to stand before God in heaven, and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And most people, I've asked that question too, say something like, well, I'm a good person. Which leads you to wonder, So if if good people go to heaven, is it like the top 30% of good people? Is there like a cutoff? And how do you know which side of the cutoff you're on? And how do you even know that's how God works at all? And I pointed out to people, it would be awful weird of God to create a heaven and hell and not then be really clear on how to meet him in heaven. And then finally, if what you're believing right now weren't true... Would you want to know about it? Well, this gives people the opportunity to say no and get lost, in which case, you know, you can kind of shake the dust off your feet and, and move on. But if they say yes, they're, they're asking you to share. Application two. If you haven't repented and believed, now's the time One of the reasons I want to argue for the truth and fairness of God's judgment is that many people seek to avoid the weight of it by doubting. Jude says, be merciful to those who doubt. To others, show mercy mixed with fear. I want to explain God's wrath in a way that shows mercy to those who doubt. But I also want to mix in some fear. If you're sitting here, say week after week, and you're hearing the message and then rejecting it, Jesus says to those who have been given much, much will be demanded. Or to use Paul's words in chapter two, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of wrath. And the judgment against those who hear and then reject will be even worse than the dark abusers from Sodom and Gomorrah. God's mercy mixed with fear. Well, where's the mercy? We just back up a few verses to to verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, or some translations faith to faith, it means faith first to last, or faith top to bottom. It's faith all the way down, just as it is written the righteous shall live by faith. You don't have to be righteous, and of course, you can't. It's like jumping to the moon. But if you believe, in Jesus, who takes the weight and penalty for our sin on himself and then gives us his righteousness. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God's judgment is just, it's fair, and it's universal. It's worth considering God's judgment because the the closer we consider the heat of it, the more we understand the riches of his mercy and his grace that Paul says in Ephesians 1 he's lavished on us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God of justice, that no wrong in the history of the world will go unaccounted for. We also thank you that you've provided a way. We're part, we've contributed to that grand scale of evil. And so we're thankful that you receive the judgment for sin in our place. And in your name, amen.